0: This podcast is supported by Cisco, the bridge to possible. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The
1: Biden administration has made equity a central goal, including in education, where longstanding disparities have been exacerbated by the pandemic. In this episode, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona joins Washington Post Live to discuss what policies can help students, teachers, and families as schools reopen again this fall. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live and another installment in our Opportunity in Crisis series, this time, Investing in Educational Equity. President President Biden has made equity a central goal of his administration and a central figure in that effort is our guest today. He is the Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona. Mr. Secretary, welcome. Happy to be here, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you again and great to see you. So since being confirmed, I understand you've traveled to 16 states plus Puerto Rico and another territory that doesn't come to mind offhand, visiting schools and students. What have you learned
0: during those trips? I learned, uh, number one, that our students are resilient, that our educators are rock stars, and that we wanna come back to school. We wanna come back to school safely, but we missed a peer-to-peer interaction. Uh, we missed the engagement with teachers, and we wanna come back to a system that's better than the one that we left uh, in March 2020. That's what I heard throughout the country, uh, and I'm excited to be in a position now where I can help support that and influence that with the Build Back Better agenda. I'm confident that we're going to get it done.
1: All right, you, there there are a lot of buzzwords there, peer to peer, and a bunch of other things that we're going to get to <laughs> in in our conversation. So let's talk about talk about budget. You proposed a nearly what is it one one hundred and two point eight billion dollar budget. You said end quote. Uh, You said it, quote, makes good on President Biden's campaign commitment to reverse years of underinvestment in federal education programs and would begin to address the significant inequities that millions of students, primarily students of color and teachers, confront every day in underserved schools across America. So let's talk more specifically about those inequities. It's going to take a lot more than money to to close the gaps. So what do you do? What are you going to do to close
0: those gaps? You know, it, it's really important to contextualize it. I've been in education over 23 years, and you know, the the notion of doing more with less is just common commonplace now with educators. But we have a president now that understands that education is the foundation, and not only do we want to address inequities, we want to raise the bar across the country to provide our students with more opportunity. That's why the community college access is there. That's why programming for three to four year olds is there. But you're absolutely right, Jonathan. Resources alone are not gonna cut it. We need to be bold and innovative as we reopen schools to give students opportunities in ways that they didn't have it before. This is the closest to a reset button in education that we've ever had. We have to take advantage of it. Uh, You mentioned
1: community colleges and your proposed budget provides two years of free community college uh, to students. How would this help level the playing field for students, particularly students living in, in poor or disadvantaged communities?
0: Right. That is one of those strategies that uh, can have a profound impact across the country. Uh, we know graduates of community college can earn up to 21% more uh, than high school graduates. So not only does it help them and their families, but it, it helps a community. And what we need to do is couple that strategy with the evolution of our middle and high schools to provide career pathways and connections to those two-year colleges, so that our students as early as uh, middle schoolers see themselves as uh, college students. And that those two-year programs connect to our four-year programs, connect to our workforce partners, uh, so that it could go full circle to help develop and build a community. I'm
1: gonna push you on something here, because uh, while you're pushing for free, Uh, community college. You have uh, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia who wants to make student loans forgivable for the first two years of community
0: college. Why is his proposal not good enough in your eyes? You know, I'll let the details of the plans be worked out with our colleagues, and uh, Senator Manchin and others have been uh, extremely supportive of uh, making sure that we get it right. So uh, I know the details will be worked out, but I'll tell you one thing. In my experience, in the last 3 months visiting the different states and talking to college students and talking to high school students who are now dealing with uh, parents that are maybe are not employed like they were before the pandemic or dealing with other issues uh, we want to remove every barrier to accessing higher education as possible for me uh, increasing public education to 14 years gives them a leg up you know uh, the we have to keep moving. We know that the other countries are there watching and they wanna pass us out. So we, the president made it very clear, we need to raise the bar a little bit. And uh, any country that out- educates us, outperforms us, You know, the first lady said that, and I believe it. We have to raise the bar. Removing barriers, giving access to all is critically important if we're gonna be successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, still sticking to your proposed
1: budget, uh, it also would help um, support community-based programs uh special education and teacher training and and support programs why did these
0: programs need a boost in funding and support i'll start with the teacher training right Um, the the budget calls for nine billion dollars to support educator uh, pipeline programs to make sure that our students beautifully diverse students that we have in our classrooms have access to the teaching profession. It also ensures that our teachers are continually getting support that they need to do the complex job that they have. You know, We're asking a lot of our educators when we're having students that are coming back from a pandemic, having experienced so much trauma. So it's important that we're providing the professional learning opportunities for teachers, the career pathways for educators, but also that we're recruiting and being very specific about uh, getting more teachers in those areas that are hard to fill where the students with greatest needs are often in, such as uh, those programs for students with disabilities, where there's shortage of special education teachers, we need more. We have a growing number of Latino students, and yet our bilingual education classrooms uh, are often difficult to find teachers for. So there's a lot of work to do there. So the teacher development program is important. Our students with disabilities, ensuring that we have enough funds there is another really important step. You know. Uh, We we recognize the importance of uh, increasing the funds toward IDEA. And I can't tell you how many stories I heard in the last year from families, educators, and students themselves, students with disabilities, about how the remote learning wasn't enough for them. So we have to make sure that we give our students an opportunity to be successful, that we support our educators in the process, so that our schools continue to thrive.
1: A couple of times you have used the the phrase, raise the bar, which is a different way of saying something you said last month um, about, you said last month, you know, going back to normal is a low bar um, with early childhood education. How does public education need to adjust with our changing times and not just our changing times, our post-pandemic changing times?
0: You know, you mentioned earlier um, that we have uh, disparities in education gaps, opportunity gaps, achievement gaps, outcome gaps, they have become normalized. I often use the words of uh, Dr. Pedro Nogueira. uh, In in one of his books, he wrote about the normalization of failure. When I became Secretary of Education, uh, I really sought out to try to address the gaps that exist in outcomes for students. When I was commissioner in Connecticut, that was a focus of mine. And we have to make sure that when we build back better, we're not going back to the system of March 2020 where it was almost predictable. You could predict uh, a student's uh, ability to uh, succeed based on race or place. That's unacceptable. We should have a high level of uh, outrage that it's going on that long. So. What, what it translates to is when we reopen our schools, we're giving all students an opportunity to have highly qualified teachers, getting rigorous curriculum, having opportunities for uh, you know, the highest level courses that lead to college access or career options. Um, we should make sure that uh, students have access to universal pre-kindergarten, to community college. It, those are the things that will level the playing field. So going back to the system that we had in March 2020 is insufficient. We do have to build back better, and we have to do it with trend, with strategies that we know will work. Early childhood education, community college, um, higher level courses for our students, those are the ingredients to raising the bar.
1: Yeah, I keep scribbling notes as <laughs> as you're talking as you keep catching me looking down at my paper. I feel like I'm back in school, <laughs> back in school. <laughs> All right, on universal pre-K, um, which I know a lot of uh, education experts And professionals say is vitally important not only to closing closing those gaps but also to getting kids three year year three-year-olds and four-year-olds on the on that trajectory of upward uh, upward uh, mobility and trajectory however there are people notably Republicans who look (coughs) at that universal pre-k why are we paying for this so, talk in more concrete terms about why investing in universal pre-K is important—not just to, not just for the education of those children, but for the future prosperity of the country.
0: You know, to that I say, pay now or pay later. Yeah, I was a elementary school principal, and I worked uh, in a in a school with dedicated educators, and we served three and four year olds we had students that were learning foundational skills. and I'm I not even get into the brain science and how uh, learning happens at that age and how students at that age when they're learning executive functioning, that can leads to that can lead to uh, greater success in elementary school. but the data also suggests that students that have a good foundation in early childhood education um, are more likely to take higher level courses and are more likely to be prepared for college. So, it just pays dividends later uh you know follows the the science on this and and the studies that show that quality programming does lead to success later in life and i can tell you from experience jonathan i could tell you which students didn't have a good quality early childhood experience uh, when they were getting uh, support and interventions later in their elementary years just four or five years later and um, those are students that often become disillusioned with school or disengaged a strong foundation is is to a house is how you build it nice and strong. And like I said, you know, without a strong foundation, the skyscrapers won't be skyscrapers. They won't last long. Same is true with our children.
1: You know, last month, um, the Education Department, your department submitted plans on how states plan to, plan to use um, funds from the American Rescue Plan to support schools. Could you talk about some of the, some of those plans, how states are
0: planning to use that money to support their schools? Sure. You know, it's really, the, the the title of this is Opportunity in Crisis. And I'll tell you, I'm so inspired by the educators and the leaders across the country who have looked at this as an opportunity to invest in our children, in our schools, in our educators. You know, I've seen summer school programs that bring in community partners. I was in Los Angeles uh, last week, and I saw how... They had a robust uh, summer school program with community partners that not only supported students academically, but provided them with mentors. Uh, in Portland, Oregon, I saw a program for students that doubled in size due to the American Rescue Plan and the resources there that gave students an opportunity to engage with one another. And uh, the school was full of students. It was a beautiful sight. The teachers were excited to be there. Um, I'm hearing about programs across the country where students are now going to be given access to courses that they might not have had previously because now they can take advantage of online offerings as well. Um, Smaller class sizes, better technology, and of course the mental health access that students will have now and the support for that social and emotional well-being of our students um, is critically important and we're going to see more of that. We're going to see districts ensuring that students are not hungry when they go to school in ways that they hadn't before. Uh, we, we are uh, finding opportunities out of crisis and we are gonna be better when we return. It's not easy work and um, it's not a one size fits all either, but we have innovative and caring educators across the country. And um, our job as a Department of Education is not only to help support with funds, but to lift best practices so we can learn from one another. You know, when we
1: talk about schools and public education, I, I wonder if sometimes people think we're just talking about public schools in cities. There are public schools in, in rural communities. So I'm just wondering, when it comes to uh, um, schools in more rural communities, poorer communities, how do you ensure that students and educators have the same resources um, on par with those in wealthier wealthier, maybe suburban
0: communities. Yeah, that's a good point, John. I think oftentimes when we talk about disparities and we talk about underserved groups, uh, we forget to mention the rural students uh, throughout our country. I was in Arizona recently, and I was able to visit a school where there wasn't another school for miles and miles and miles. And it just seemed like we needed to make sure that they had everything that they needed to be successful there. And a lot of that is really broadband and and making sure that the devices are working, and making sure that they have access to the same learning opportunities as students in more uh, dense areas of of our country. So those conversations with those educators and with those mayors and and state and federal leaders involved trying to build an infrastructure that can withstand uh, what we experienced before. and just make sure that we're looking at the uh, digital divide in the rear view mirror soon. We have the American Rescue Plan and the infrastructure plan that can provide $100 billion in infrastructure, which our students need. And this isn't, you know, the internet is not a, a lofty thing anymore. It's like the new pencil. The device and the internet is needed. It's a required tool for learning. So we have to get past that idea that, well, you, you don't need it, you do need it. In order for our students to have, a, 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 a chance at success and um, to level the playing field, these are tools that they need for learning and it's on us to make sure they get it. Uh, the funding is there, the president's urgency is there, we just have to deliver. You know, I, I'm,
1: I'm actually in, intrigued by this analogy you had here that uh, basic broad, uh, access, broadband access, access to the internet it is the new pencil. and one of the things that the pandemic has has shown us or exposed are the the inequities, the gaps that are there and i'm just wondering when it comes to that kind of access that access to the new pencil was the access even more or lack of access even more severe than you thought it was before the pandemic
0: yes and i'll and i'll i'll share with you it was about april of 2020, we were about a month uh, into our shutdown in Connecticut and I had a conversation with a superintendent from a very wealthy district uh, and um, a really strong superintendent, uh, great district. Uh, I, I said, how's it going? And he said, you know, Miguel, it's basically like turn on, It's like turning on the light switch. All the students had a device. They had great broadband access. Many of them were fortunate to have a parent be able to work from home. Um, And then the curriculum that they had on the other side of the screen was top notch. We invested in it years ago. So all we had to do was flip a switch and our students got high quality education. That same day, Jonathan, I spoke to a superintendent in another community that was under-resourced with uh, students that were um, well below the poverty line. And I asked how it's going there. And she shared with me that it took four weeks to communicate with her families. And not through the devices, through through snail mail and uh, through, you know, the other community was four weeks ahead already. This community, we were still trying to connect with their students. The gaps were exacerbated, and we have to keep that in mind as we welcome our students back, because it's on us now to make sure that we uh, compensate and provide accelerated support for those students who missed out on a lot, and that's not only academic, a lot of these students also suffered more trauma because in those underserved communities where there's higher density, we saw more death, we saw more job loss. So um, it's really important that we get our students in five days a week and provide them that mental health support that we know they need to address those gaps.
1: Mr. Secretary, what role do public-private partnerships play in any of your plans, but specifically increasing broadband access your plans for for um,
0: America's public schools. You know, public-private partnerships are critical, and I want to see them continue to expand. We saw the best of the American people in the last year and a half. We saw how people came to came together to support our our most vulnerable, and uh, I just hope that that partnership and that innovative spirit continues. A couple examples of where I've seen it. Uh, really strong over the last year is, I've seen community partners like the YMCAs, the Boys and Girls Club step up to help with summer programming and give students experiences engaging with one another. I'm hearing about our workforce partners engaging with our two-year colleges and our high schools to give students opportunities to have internships and get out there and see what the job market's like um, to help them make uh, life decisions. I saw private uh, donors step up tremendously to provide laptops for students uh, in a time of need last year. Uh, They stepped up with their own dollars and and different foundations came in and said, where do you need us? And um, together we were able to uh, close the digital divide in Connecticut due to that partnership as well. So you know, the invitation is always gonna be there. It takes a village to raise a child. And uh, in, in our country, we saw the best of folks over the last year and a half. I hope we can continue that with the same level of urgency we had last year to give our students the best opportunities to succeed so um
1: we are what month is this it is july <laughs> late july um school uh is due to start again the cdc is recommending that students go back to the classroom this fall but every day we are talking about the delta variant and <clears throat> uh how people are um being infected by the delta variant people fully vaccinated having breakthrough infections um with covid Happening in some parts of the country, but spreading quickly, what is the Department of Education doing to monitor whether any adjust any adjustments may be made may need to be made
0: if the delta variant uh, does not slow down? Yes, first and foremost, vaccinate, vaccinate vaccinate it, it, you know that's the best way we can ensure not only that we can get back to uh, regular experiences like going into school full-time but also in a way where we don't have to wear masks all the time Uh, so first and foremost my message is if you if you're eligible to get vaccinated get vaccinated it's safe um, and it's a it's our best ticket to a sense of normalcy however you know what i've seen work throughout the country is when our educators work closely with our health experts to ensure that the mitigation strategies that are needed are being used Not only to reduce transmission, which is the most important thing, but also to build confidence to make sure that parents are sending their children to school. Uh, I can tell you now, the, the impact on students when they're not in school is great. And we need to really recognize that if the students are not in school, the experience is not the same. And after a year and a half the way we've had it, they deserve to be in school every day, all day. Utilizing the mitigation strategies, we know it works. Yes, we are keeping our eye on the Delta variant. No different than when I was commissioner and we were watching the spread of COVID in Connecticut, which was hit pretty hard. Um, but we were able to reopen schools safely in August of 2020. I'm fortunate my own children went to school from day one uh, and uh, that was critically important for their, for their for not only their academic success, but more importantly for their happiness. So all children across the country deserve that opportunity. We need to do everything we can to make sure We're promoting a safe return to school, but we're also promoting a full return to school for all students across the country. How
1: how do you deal with this? I'm I'm writing down another word that you said their happiness, the happiness of the students, of of those students. And I'm just going to admit right now, I don't have kids. So I just put that out there. So I don't have young students. But part of me wonders how do you, as an educator, how do educators balance? the happiness of those children with their health and their, their um, yeah. physical well-being, the physical well-being of those children?
0: Sure. And I appreciate that question. I'll tell you right now, I would never compromise the safety of my children or my wife who works in a school. Uh, I would never compromise their health and safety uh, to get them into school prematurely. Uh, and I'll, you can ask my 15 year old daughter, there were decisions that I made about hanging out with friends or doing things that were did not make her happy. So um, her health <laughs> and safety is more important to me. Uh, but I also recognize that when we follow mitigation strategies and when we ensure that our buildings are clean, safe, and we're communicating that with families, they're not mutually exclusive. You know, in fact, her, uh, both my children, uh, my son and my daughter, their happiness and their emotional well-being depended a lot on being around their peers and around their teachers and engaging in activities that they typically do at that age, you know, playing soccer or playing volleyball, or being part of the drama club. Like these are things that students should be experiencing. So think about the, the, the risk to their health, their emotional health. If we're taking that away from them, because we're not following the mitigation strategies as adults. Yeah, they, they, I think a lot of I wonder if a lot of people, um,
1: when they hear, uh, you know, kids want to get together and they want to play and they want to be on sports, whether they understand that that getting together and playing and being in part of sports is also part of learning. It is part exactly. of the the educational process. Um, in the time that we have left, I got to get you on a couple of a couple of other things. And you um, were in the headlines last month because of a spirited exchange you had with Republican Congresswoman Mary Miller during the House Education and Labor Committee um, hearing. And during the exchange, Congresswoman Miller asked you about educational material given to students and families entitled, quote, confronting anti-LGBTQI plus harassment in schools. And this led Congresswoman Miller to ask you how many genders you thought there were, and you not giving her a definitive, a definitive uh, number or answer so what did that exchange signal to you why why are we arguing
0: over, over this particular question first and foremost we have the backs of our LGBTQ students our transgender students no one should be made to feel less than uh, by a person in your playground uh, during recess or by an elected official it's not gonna we, we're gonna protect students all day and all means all. And if uh, someone doesn't feel comfortable around those uh, students, um, I'm not gonna entertain uh, an exchange where uh, our students who are watching are made to feel uncomfortable. I'm just not gonna feed into that. We're gonna support our students' rights to participate in school, and we're going to support our students. Uh, They need more support now, not less. So uh, for me, it's really important to make sure that at the end of the day, I'm serving as a child advocate here as the secretary of education, and I'm putting students first. And that includes in conversations that I have with our elected officials.
1: Um, And as you know, a number of states, including Florida, have taken legislative steps to ban transgender students from participating in sports. I'm wondering if you think their needs – to be some sort of federal mandate to protect the rights of transgender students. More specifically, do you think the Equality Act, which is sitting in the in the United States Senate, would that piece of legislation, if passed by the Senate and signed by the president, because he says he will sign it, will that, would that protect transgender students from these pernicious laws and proposals that are out there?
0: You know, we really need to work together to make sure we're protecting students at all levels. Uh, the Office of Civil Rights is is our arm to make sure that the rights of our students are protected. Uh, support from the Hill and uh, would obviously be critically important as well. We would support that at all levels, and not only at the federal level, but at the state level and at the local level. You know, our students need us now, uh, and we need to make sure that we're uh, supporting them and um, making sure that when we're talking about reopening schools, we're not just talking about good ventilation systems or having PPE on hand. We're also talking about nurturing environments where students feel welcome, where they feel accepted, and they can be themselves in our schools. That's what our schools should be for our students. It's a second family, it's a sense of community. It's on us, and I have confidence in our educators, Jonathan. I have complete confidence in our educators. Oftentimes things become politicized, but uh, at the end of the day, when the doors closed, and there's a teacher there, I know that our teachers care about our kids and they're going to put their needs first. Well, there's a perfect segue to my last question, and that
1: is when it comes to the issue of race, you told lawmakers that you trust educators to do yes. their jobs. So how do you think teaching about race, racism, and its impact on our history should be incorporated into
0: classroom instruction? You know, the beautiful thing about our country is the diversity that... Uh, you know, this country is unique in that in that sense, and we all come from different places, and, and we all add to this beautiful country and in in our, in our growth, and it's important for our students to see the contributions of folks that look like them in our country's development. And it's equally as important for students to see the contributions of others that don't look like them, so that they can get a better sense of what the world is really like. Um, I think we'd be shortchanging our students if we didn't do that. That's another issue that's become very politicized. And it's unfortunate because, you know, our educators know what they're doing. Now, it's delicate when we, when you come out of a pandemic and you also have a divided country. Uh, but again, education can unify folks under this beautiful flag here and making sure that uh, our we have pride in our country while also recognizing the differences, but also in cases, the mistakes that we've made as a country. I think our students are capable of handling that. And I think they want it. Well, Secretary uh,
1: Miguel Cardona, the 12th Secretary of uh, Education. Yes, the 12th Secretary of Education. Thank you very, very much for coming to Washington Post Live.
0: Glad to be with you, Jonathan. Thank you.
1: And as always, thank you for tuning in. Go to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find out more information about our programs past and those that are upcoming in the future. In the meantime, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for watching Washington Post Live.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series
1: and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.